Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to come here today to learn more from your word, to hear from your Holy Spirit who gave your word to your people so many years ago as a blessing to all who live on this earth. And Lord, I just pray that as we dig further into your word, looking at faith and finances this morning, that your same Holy Spirit will be here with us to interpret your word, to touch our hearts, to convict us and convert us, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, the seminar session, I don't know whether these lights are able to be turned off independently, uh, but if the front lights can go off, that would be great, but we'll see what happens. Um, it's called The Christian Atheist. Do I believe in God but trust in money? It's a question which, when I ask of myself, I have to regularly realign, recalibrate, and say, hey, Julian, what are you really trusting in? You know, on, on your dollar bills that you have here, it says, in God we trust. And I think it's one of those ironic things that we write in God we trust on the item that we trust <laughs> more than God many times. And so it's, we, we have to ask ourselves, what are, what are we really trusting in, God or money? And it's, it's a question that only you can answer. You can't look at somebody else's life and say, hey, that guy's too involved with money. You can discern and think, well, maybe he is, maybe he isn't, maybe she is, maybe she isn't. But ultimately, it's in your heart where that is revealed. If you want to see more pictures like this, uh, it's a little bit hard to see under these bright lights, but uh, go to journeyswiththemessiah.org. This is a, a photo of the rich young ruler, of course, and if you want to know where the rich young ruler story is found in Scripture, it's found in a couple of places, but one of the places is on the number plate, Matthew 19, 16 to 22. Uh, the photographer is very... Uh, He's a New York fashion photographer who decided to use those talents that God had given him for sharing the gospel, and he takes photos of the life of Christ in different parts of the world, and uh, it's amazing work that he has. Journeys with the Messiah. Uh, if you jump on faithversusfinance.org, I'm just very quickly run through some of the resources there. Uh, the book is available to buy through Amazon or whatever from there. Uh, there's an e-book on there. It's a free download. If you want to just download, the, download it and read it on your iPad or whatever, just download it for free. Uh, there's an audio book that you can download for free if you want to listen to it, uh, if you don't mind the Australian accent all the way through. <laughs> uh, there's video clips, 10 short video clips. So if you're, if you're studying faith and finance in a small group at church or you're doing a lesson on it or something, you can download these little video clips uh, on there. They're only three or four minutes long. There's articles um, as well. There's small group discussion guides. A lot of resources. Of course, there's the Bruised Camel uh, that I don't put every issue up on there, uh, but you can subscribe from that website uh, to the Bruised Camel. Uh, and then, yeah, there's talks and I run seminars around the place. So what we're looking at now is uh, just to give you an overview of, of the seminar. We're going to look at a lot of little, let's call them, packages of, uh, one might be a quote that I'm going to expand on, one might be a Bible verse, one might be something that's happening in the world. This first one that we're going to look at is the distribution of household wealth. Now, we, we've been around long enough to know that if you own a refrigerator and a car and you've got a bank account, you're quite well off. You know, we've heard those things coming through from many charities and different places. But I'm a member of what's called the 1% Club, which means I'm a member of the richest 1% of adults on the planet. 
And people look at that, and I've had people come up to me just a couple of weeks ago in Canada when I was doing some talks, somebody came up and said, Julian, you're a member of the 1% Club. Do they sort of like communicate with each other and, and do you talk and do you have like secret phone calls and, and this sort of thing? Can you give me any inside information on this 1% Club? I said, yeah, we, we talk to each other all the time. It's, you know, it's, it's how society is led by the 1% Club. I mean, it, it, we guide what goes on in the world. Oh, really? Um, and I said, yeah, yeah, come to my next session and I'll explain about the 1% Club. And so here's, here's the, the information. If you have your net worth, so that's the value of all your assets minus the value of your liabilities. If your net worth is 3,000 US dollars or more, then you are richer than 50% of the world's adults. So you're in the 50% Club. Okay? 3,000 US dollars. If your net worth, assets minus liabilities, is 90,000 US dollars, then you are richer than 90% of adults on the earth, which puts you in the 10% club. So congratulations, welcome to the 10% club. What do you think it would have to be to be a member of that 1% club? You know that, the, that, that crazy group of super elites who you read about in the New York Times and they talk about them on CNN and they hammer them and say, to hell with this mob because there's this great divide between the rich and the poor. What do you think that would have to be? How many millions would you have to have? Well, the answer is very clear. 750,000 US dollars, welcome to the club, if that's you. $750,000 worth of net worth, and you are in the 1% club. When I realized that, and I read my Bible, and I read all these texts about the rich, I couldn't ignore the fact that they were talking directly to me. And I want to tell you that when Jesus and the rich came together, it usually wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. Even when they were church leaders, it usually wasn't pretty. So, 1% club. Yeah, we do talk to each other every day. <laughs> I've talked to members of the 1% club this morning. I, I don't even have to ask sometimes. I'm just guessing that many people are. We do rule the world. We do guide policy. But we're not right up where you might think you need to be to be in the 1% club. I was in a, uh, a, a bus in the US a few years ago going to a seminar. In fact, it was just before ASI uh, a few years back. And I was going to this uh, a, a Christian uh, economic conference, a financial com uh, conference, <coughs> and I was sitting beside this guy on the back of the bus, and I'd never met him before, but I knew we were both going to the same conference, and I, sa I said, what's your name, where are you from? And he said, my name's Alan Barnhart, and uh, he's from here in the US, a uh, great Christian guy, and I said, well, what do you do? He said, well, I'm, I'm in business. And I said, what sort of business? He said, well, we're in the heavy lifting business, you know, cranes and that sort of thing. And so I thought, oh, well, okay, uh, heavy lifting business, um, what do I know about cranes? You know how you're trying to get the next question? And I'll, oh, cranes. Um, what's your biggest crane? Is it an 80-ton crane? Because I knew you measured cranes in tons. And uh, this guy said, uh, no, Julian, we don't measure our cranes in tons. And I went, oh, that was the only thing I knew about construction. And uh, he, I said, well, how do you measure your cranes? He said, well, to give you an idea, to get our biggest crane from the yard to the place where it's going to do the work and lift something takes 80 semi-trailers. I don't know, is that what you call your big trucks over here, semi-trailers? 80 trucks to move one crane. He said to get the crane from the yard into position and built using other cranes to build it, 
costs a million dollars before it even lifts anything. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's a sort of different crane to what I was thinking about. <laughs> Here you can see Alan standing on the top, on the right-hand side, on the top of one of those big wind turbine, you know, the big wind towers. Alan has cranes that just grab those things and build them. Just doot, doot, doot. And you know how big they are. They're like a football field turning in the sky. If you want a building moved, Alan can move it. They just bring their guys in, they bring their cranes in, they pick up the building and they take it from this block in the city to that block in the city. They, they move stuff around. I said, well, tell me your story, Alan. What, why, why are you coming to this Christian conference, this finance conference that we're going to? <clears throat> he said, well, when he, he and his brother were in their early 20s, they'd started to work in the business with mum and dad. And mum and dad came to them one day and said, boys, we're going sailing. Do you want to keep running the business or should we just sell it and uh, you guys do what you want? And uh, they, being good Christian young men, they prayed about it and they thought, well, what are we going to do? And they got some advice and they decided that they would keep the business. They said to their mum and dad, how long are you going sailing for? And the mum and dad said, well, we don't know, which was a good answer because they went for seven years. <laughs> so uh, the boys decided to keep the business and the business grew. And as the business grew, Alan and his brother realised that the increase in profits was doing something to their heart. And they didn't like what was happening. You heard my testimony before, they were becoming proud and, and self-reliant. And so they went and got godly advice from other business people, from Christian lawyers. There's more seats down the front here if you, if you want to come in. There's probably about 10 or 12 in here and probably 10 over in there. So feel free to come through if you like. Uh, and so they went and got advice. And out of this legal advice and all the rest of it, they decided to legally give God 95% of the business. In law, under US law, in contract law, the, the owner of 95% of their heavy lifting business is God. That means that God gets 95% of the profits, and if that business ever sells, 95% of the sale price goes to God. I went, whoa, that's challenging. Well, God kept growing the business, and the profits kept going up, and the 5% became too much for Alan and his brother, and they're like, oh, we're feeling it again. So they gave God another 4%, 99%. And a couple of years ago, they gave God the last 1%. God owns the entire business. They get none of the profits. They give between $1 and $2 million. Let me get the maths on this right. They give, they give 30 to $50 million a year to mission projects, primarily taking the gospel into Muslim countries from that business. The business now turns over $250 million a year. They work all over the place. You can jump online and, and see their business. But here's the interesting thing. Here is where Alan just, just about knocked me out through the wall of the bus. I said, Alan, why did you do that? I mean, I knew in my heart. I'd had this faith versus finance battle and God had given me the victory and I'd been converted and all this. You know, I'd been on that journey by the time I was talking to Alan, but this was really challenging me. 100% to God? You see, Alan... And his brother only earn a wage, and it's not the highest wage in the company. In fact, the wage that Alan and his brother earn in that business is not enough for him to take his family to Disneyland. He can't afford to put his children in private schools because he's given the entire business to God. That's challenging. And I said, Alan, you're pushing me beyond my limits here. <laughs> this is really hard going. Alan's not a Seventh-day Adventist. Alan's just a God-fearing man who wants to take the gospel to the world. 
I said, why do you do it, Alan? And you know what he said to me? He said, Julian, do you believe that we are in a war? As Christians, that we're in a war? And I'm like, mate, I'm an Adventist. We've got the great controversy. I mean, you want a book? I'll give you a book. Uh, <laughs> sure, I believe we're in a war. He said, do you really, really believe that we're in a war? Yes. Yes, Alan, I believe we're in a war. He said, Julian, this is what I believe. He said, in a war, the army camp cooks shouldn't eat any better than the soldiers on the front line. The donors shouldn't eat any better than the missionaries. Man, that's challenging. That is challenging. A word of warning for those of you who are taking a photo of this, please don't take it to the donors and say, oh, look what Julian said. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You may or may not agree with that. It's a very personal thing but it's a very powerful principle. Are we in a war? Yes. Should the cooks be eating better than the soldiers? Don't know. Could it be true that God blesses us beyond our needs so that we can improve our standard of giving, not our standard of living? Could that be true? My boys come to me and they say, Dad, I need this. And I say, is it a need or a weed? Because I know, you know, weeds grow up inside your heart and they cut out, yeah. I says, is it a need or a weed? Because a need is actually a want that you think is a need, so it becomes a weed, okay? So it's a weed. <laughs> God blesses us beyond our needs. What are our needs? We know what our wants are. What are our needs? He blesses us beyond that so that we can improve our standard of giving, not our standard of living. Many of you will know what that is. Some of you may have been born in Times Square and have never left New York, but uh, many of you will know what that is. As you would have heard in my testimony earlier on, I grew up a very, let's just say, a barefoot existence. And when I was nine years old, I went round to a friend's place one night and stayed the night, and early the next morning, his job for the family was to go out and get the family cow and bring her in for milking. The problem was that we didn't have shoes and there was ice all over the grass. It was a frosty morning. And he said, come out with me and find the cow. So we went out to look for this cow and this stupid cow. We couldn't find it anywhere. I don't know. It was only a little area, but we couldn't find this cow. And my feet were starting to just be so painful. I wasn't used to walking on ice with... with, uh, with bare feet. We finally found the cow, and on the way back to the milking shed, I was complaining to my friend, and he said, Julian, the solution's simple. Now, some of you already know what the solution is. (laughs) And he said, when Betsy, or whatever the cow's name was, when Betsy lays another one of those, go and jump in it. And I'm like, no way. He's like, yeah, yeah. He says, it works every time. And I'm like, oh. And I was desperate. So sure enough, Betsy did one of these. And I went and stood in it with both feet, and it was fantastic. (laughs) It it actually burnt at the start. It was like, oh, that's hot. (laughs) But then it was like, oh, that's so nice. And and I just wished that she would lay one about every yard, (laughs) back to the shed. But, you know, money, manure, sorry, is an interesting thing. If you pile it up in one place, it stinks, yeah? But you can use it for fertiliser. 
I've seen people in some countries put it on the walls of their buildings where they dry it out and then use it for fuel on their fires and it, it protects the mud wall of the building until they use it on their fires. You can, apparently when you burn it on a fire it keeps the mosquitoes away. There's a lot of good uses for manure. It was uh, Clint Murchison Jr., the founder of the Dallas Cowboys, or, or an owner of the Dallas Cowboys, who said this. He said, Julian, you've got manure in your wallet. He didn't say that to me personally, but this is what he said. He said that money is like manure. If you pile it up, it stinks, but spread it around and it does a lot of good. Yeah? Very true. We've got manure in our wallets. If we pile it up, it stinks. It doesn't necessarily stink to us because if you've got bad body odour, the last person to know is usually yourself. But if you're piling it up and you're continually building bigger structures, not necessarily buildings, but it could be trusts, it could be companies, it could be different things to protect all the assets for your future. If you're piling it all up in one place for yourself, then it starts to stink. But if you spread it around, it'll do a lot of good. Let's go to Mark 10, 17 to 27. Mark 10, 17 to 27. I know the, these are hard words that, that I'm sharing this morning. They're, they're hard words for me. Uh, I've, I'm no longer in business. Uh, I retired in my 30s. Um, I didn't expect to be doing what I'm doing today by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a teacher. Well, I'm a, I'm a teacher by degree, but I never taught. Uh, and so this is where God's placed me. But these, these are still tough words. And this passage that we're looking at now, Mark 10, 17 to 27 for many years was a passage that was probably my most hated passage of scripture. You know, we all have a favourite verse. Well, this was the antithesis of my favourite verse. This is the story of the rich young ruler. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept since my youth. And we believe he was genuine. We believe he was genuine, that he believed in his heart that he had kept all those things from his youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. When Jesus said to him, you've got to do these things to be saved, he gave five of the last six commandments. Can anybody tell me which of the last six commandments Jesus missed out when he was speaking to the rich young ruler? Yeah, thou shalt not covet. And what did he, the rich young ruler said, I've kept all these things since my youth. And Jesus said, one thing you lack, that other commandment, one thing you lack. And he walked away sad and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, and I can imagine it with tears in his eyes, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. 
Why were they astonished? Because they thought that surely the rich church leaders, the rich rulers, would be the ones that God had blessed the most and therefore they must have been the most obedient and surely they're going to heaven. They were astonished. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And, you know, I wish Jesus had then said, but if you're rich and you give lots to God's work, you'll get into the kingdom. I really wish he'd said that. But he didn't. He just said, it's really hard for rich people to get into heaven. It's really, really hard. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen? All things are possible. And what's the key word for me in that whole parable? And you might have a different word, but for me, the key word is with. With God. All things are possible. Am I with God? The rich young ruler didn't know it. Remember he came, good, good teacher. And Jesus said, what do you call me good? There's no one good but one and that is God. The rich young ruler didn't realise that he was with God. And that if he had stayed there with God, all things would have been possible. But he walked away sad because he had great wealth. Am I with God? Because if I am with God, all things are possible. This is a bit of a close-up of that photo. You can't see it here because of the lighting, but the rich young ruler already has one foot back in his Ferrari. And Jesus has one foot up. He's turning. He's on his way. It's that critical moment. It's that, to me, the photographer caught the point in time that Jesus had, that God had so often offered to me and I had so often turned away. We don't know what happened to the rich young ruler. We don't know whether he came back. We don't know what the final outcome is. I would pray that he's in heaven, that, he, that we will meet him and, and ask him what his journey was from there. But there's that moment in every person's life where we get to choose one way or the other. He was choosing his way. Christ had made the offer. And now Christ was moving on. I hope the rich young ruler caught up with him at some stage later in Christ's ministry or later in his life gave his heart to God. There it is. Luke 12.33. Well, actually, if we go back to here, one of the reasons that this passage really burred, burred me up, in fact, when I was writing my book, I got to the passage to the chapter or the story on the rich young ruler and my fingers did not want to type. They literally didn't want to type. I, was, I can still see myself looking down at them going, <laughs> how am I going to type this chapter? This is just too hard. This is too painful. I, I, just to give you some background, I wasn't writing a book at the time. I was writing a bit of a journal. It was, a, it was my journey after 15 years of faith versus finance, knowing that I wasn't saved, but doing all that I could to be saved. What must I do to be saved? And I was coming out of that as God was showing me things about a new heart and, and other things. I was just journaling my way through it to try and get it all sorted out. And then I decided that I should leave a copy for my sons. And so I put it into sort of story form, chapter form, so that they would have a record and not make the same mistakes that I'd made. 
And then God convicted me when it was in that form. He said, you need to publish this. And I went, no way. No way. This is my story. And I sat on it for two years and finally gave in, as we do, um, and it became a book. So here I was writing what is now a chapter, but was just a journal entry at the time. And I couldn't write it. And I had to say to myself, Julian, the story of the rich young ruler was not for you. The story of the rich young ruler was only for that guy at that time in history. It's not for you. And I went, phew, yeah. Oh, thank you, Lord, that's good news. <laughs> You've probably heard of exegesis. Exegesis is, I, I believe, I'm not a theologian, but it's where you look at the text and you've got to try and work out what the text means. Well, there's another thing called, I was told in, a couple of weeks ago at a camp I was speaking at here, called eisegesis, which I think is something about reading into the text what you want it to say. <laughs> eisegesis. Um, so, doing my exegesis of this text, I decided that it was just for the rich young ruler and it wasn't for me. Even though I was a rich young ruler in my own way, this message was just for him. This sell everything message was just for him. But then I kept reading in Luke and I got to Luke 12.33 and I read this. And who can tell me in Luke 12, you might want to look it up in your Bibles, who the audience is that Jesus said this to? Who is the person or people that he's talking to? He says, sell what you have and give alms, give it to the poor. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. Who can tell me, who was Jesus talking to? The disciples in Luke chapter 12. Okay, well, this is getting a bit trickier. So Jesus says to the disciples to sell what they've got. Do I want to be a disciple of Jesus? Uh, there's got to be a way of exegeting my way out of this or eisegesing my way into it. This was only for the 12 disciples at that time in history. Okay, not the disciples like us. This was for the 12 disciples at that point in history. Phew, that was close again. <laughs> then two chapters later, two chapters later, Jesus is at, his, at it again. And who can tell me who he's talking to in Luke 14? So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Who was he talking to in Luke 14? A great multitude. This is getting really, really difficult. Why does he keep telling people that they've got to sell everything? And does that mean that I have to sell everything? Well, I went back and I dug more and I dug and I dug. And in fact, I've got a friend who has this really expensive piece of software called Logos Software, I think it is. And it's, it's like the, it's like the thousand-ton crane of Bible software. And it digs and it lifts and it uncovers stuff. And he got back to me. He said, Julian, when Jesus said to the rich young ruler sell all that you own, the Greek there can be translated in two ways. It can be sell all that you own, or it can be translated sell all that owns you. Ah, okay. I'm more comfortable with that. <laughs> I was looking for comfort. I tell you, I was looking for comfort. Sell all that owns you. For those of you who own a lot of stuff, you know that you don't actually own it you know that it owns you. If you've got multiple investments and homes and share portfolios and term deposits in the bank and 401ks and all that, you know how much time that takes just to maintain and protect and insure and all the rest of it. And you think, you realise that, hey, that actually, it owns me. Sell all that you own. 
But does that mean we've got to sell our homes, our transport? Is that really what it means? Well, it depends on whether that owns you. And this is where it's such a beautiful question, a beautiful statement, a beautiful request, is that he's saying it to everybody. He's saying it to every person in this room, but it's from your heart to his heart, from his heart to your heart. It's not for anybody else. You know what owns you. You know what it is. You know whether there's something in your life that owns you, that you love more than you love God. That's what Jesus is saying to get rid of and come and follow him. There's a Danish philosopher, passed away about 200 years ago. He was an existential Christian philosopher, which is quite a mix. His name was Soren Kierkegaard, and he was known as the Disturbing Dane. And you'll see why he was disturbing, because he used to say some really, really disturbing stuff. And this is one of the things that he said. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Yeah, tough words, tough words. Tough words for a rich young ruler. Okay, let's keep moving on. Let's go to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Verses 1 to 8. We've got an amazing story there. You remember when Jesus sent out the disciples, uh, while Jesus was still on earth even, what did he tell them to take with them when they went out two by two? Nothing. They were to take nothing. There's a couple of different uh, times that he did it. He sent out the 12, he sent out the 70, and there's a couple of different records of it. And in one or two places he said, I think, to take a staff or, or something like that. But, but basically he said, take nothing. Just go, a worker is worth his keep, just go and do the work that I've called you to. So here we have, Jesus has gone back to, uh, to heaven and we have these two guys, Peter and John, going up to the temple. They're going out two by two, as Jesus said, and they're taking nothing. And this is the story, it says, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms, asked for a gift. Please give me something. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. And he didn't, because Jesus had said, don't. He'd just gone. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You know, in the, in the padded pew affluence of 2017, we can no longer honestly say, silver and gold have I none. But nor can we say, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Has our finance stolen our faith? Do we trust in God or trust in money? Peter's wallet bulged. It bulged with what I call nothing everything. His wallet was full and overflowing with nothing everything. And he used it to buy a miracle. Faith versus finance. John Wesley again. 
I love John Wesley's writings. Probably gives you a little bit of a background into, into my beliefs, in, into my journey. He says this, he says, Christians should work as hard as they can to earn as much as they can, amen, then spend as little as they can in order to give away all that they can. Oi, 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 John, what are you thinking? You and I are really good at those first two lines. We work hard, we work honest, we're trustworthy, we're responsible, we're loyal, and because of that, we are given extra responsibility and extra money. We're given new contracts, we're given business deals and things that God says will come to those who do these things. But between the first and second lines and the third and fourth lines, there is a chasm so deep and so wide that it's really, really hard to cross. Because the more we earn, the more we want to spend. But if God is blessing us to give us a better standard of giving rather than a better standard of living, and there's a point at which you've got to make that decision in your life, is the standard of living that I have now, does God want me to increase that so that I can actually have my next meal and some food security, because people are in different places at different times in life, or is God blessing me more so that I can give more? We each have to work that out individually in our own lives. But it's really hard to get from earning much to spending little so that we can give all. It's a really, really challenging situation. In Christian Service, page 41, Ellen White wrote these words, which many of you will have heard before. I had heard them numerous times, and they worried me sick. Not one in 20 whose names are registered upon the church books are prepared to close their earthly history. I, I could do maths. I could do maths. That means 95% weren't ready, and I knew which section I was in. Wow, not one in 20. But I had never been told the rest of the paragraph. I had never been told the reason why not one in 20 was ready. She gives a number of reasons. The very first one is this. Not one in 20 whose names are registered upon the church books are prepared to close their earthly history. They are professedly serving God, but they are more earnestly serving mammon. They say they are serving God. They have all the appearances of serving God. But when you look at their efforts, when you look at their energies, when you look at their focus, when you look at what gets them out of bed in the morning, they're actually serving money. And so they're not ready. This is challenging stuff, friends. I need this every day. I can share it every day because I need it every day. For those of you who are in the testimony before, you would have seen that quote about Paul. Not Saul, Paul, the converted great apostle who wrote more stuff in the New Testament than anybody else. Paul fought with self every day. And he said, I die daily. As I said, I'm no theologian, but the word for I in the Greek is made up of three letters, epsilon, gamma, omega. E-G-O. Dies daily. Ego dies daily. I get goosebumps just thinking of that. That's, that's the battle, friends. That's where we're at every day. James 4.10, humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord and he will lift you up. Let him lift you up. And when he does lift you up, humble yourself even more. When he lifts you up, get down on your knees. 
even more and say, Lord, I want to obey you, but Lord, this is messing with my head. Lord, they've invited me to speak at ASI, so I must have a really good message. Haven't I, Lord? Sorry, Lord. Sorry. Every day, friends, this is a battle for every one of us. Every day. Professedly serving God, but more earnestly serving money. Some of you may recognize this guy. He's not related to any of you. <coughs> but I lie. He's actually related to 20% of people on earth genetically. Uh, that's what they tell us. The geneticists tell us. Uh, you can trace the genetics, your genetics, or some people's genetics, back to Genghis Khan, uh, a very prolific father uh, from the Mongolian area of, uh, of Asia. Genghis Khan was a, a great warrior, and he had a number of military strategies that he used. One of those military strategies was that he would send out his uh, generals ahead of himself, and they would go and scout out the land. Now, I've just realised that I've, I've uh, got to grab something here. They w- the, the generals would go and scout out the land, and they would find out for Genghis what were, where the treasures were, where the great places to conquer were. And they would all come back and report to Genghis and say, hey, Genghis, this is the place where we should take the whole army. And so as one of these generals... Sorry, I'm just fiddling around getting a speaker set up here. There we go. And one of these generals was heading out towards Turkey, heading west from where they were in Eastern Asia. They had been looting and pillaging as they'd gone across from town to town and they had got quite a hoard of, of stuff together, gold and assets and different things that, as they'd moved across Asia. And as they came across towards Turkey, a Turkish army came towards them and these guys were angry because they knew that Genghis's general and his men were about to try and invade their people. And so they came out to fight. And Genghis knew that weighed down with all this stuff, his army was no match for these angry guys who were trying to defend their homeland. And this general went, what am I going to do? Well, he had the wisdom of Genghis. And he sent some of his men ahead with all the gold, all the booty that they had collected. Am I allowed to use that word booty here? Is that a... I think it's got a different meaning over here. Uh, (laughs) The stuff that they had collected, and they sent it on ahead as a gift. And they took it to the Turks, and they said, oh, this is a gift. We've come all the way across Asia to give you this gift from our general, from from Genghis Khan, uh, for the Turkish people. Please, take the gift. It is yours. And the Turks were like, oh, fantastic. That was easy. (laughs) Man, we thought we were going to have to lose life and limb fighting these guys. And so they just took all the booty and started heading back towards Turkey. Well, the general now had some men who were really angry because they just had all their stuff taken away. And they were really light and fast because they weren't weighed down by all their assets. And they struck the back of those Turks, killed them all, took all the stuff and kept going. Send it on ahead is the message. And I'm going to see if I can show you a video clip. If, if it doesn't work, that's okay. But let's, uh, let's see how we go. We'll get some sound happening here. No, it's not going to work. That's okay. <laughs> we'll turn it back around. It's a, it's a video clip, one of the ones off the website. It's called Sky Banking. And I tell the story. I, I'm sitting beside a lake in Zurich in Switzerland. 
talking about Swiss banking and some different things there, and I talk about one of the reasons why I no longer try to just build my earthly wealth. And one of those reasons is a, a parable, I guess you would call it, about a rich guy and a poor guy who lived on the same street here in Houston, let's say. They, they didn't live too far from each other. And the poor guy lived in a very humble little home and the rich guy lived in a big flash mansion. And the, both of the guys died and as the story goes, they went to heaven and there was St. Peter at the gates. Okay, so I'm not sure of the theology of everything, but there they were. He says, welcome to heaven, gentlemen. Uh, come and I will show you your homes that we have prepared for you for eternity. And they're like, oh, cool, this is the exciting day we've been looking forward to. And so they follow St. Peter down the, the streets of gold and they turn up this avenue and they go up there and they see these mansions and they're like, whoa, it's incredible. And they come to this absolutely fantastic palatial mansion. And St. Peter turns to the poor man and, and says to him, my friend, this is your home for eternity. And the poor man goes, What? Um, he couldn't say anything. He just said, thank you. And he walked, pushed open the door and went inside. Well, the rich man and Peter went further up the street. And of course, the rich man thought, man, if the poor man's getting that, <laughs> imagine what I'm going to get. And they came around another corner and here was a relatively humble mansion. And Peter said, well, here's yours for eternity, your home. And the rich man said, no way, there's got to be a mistake. You, 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 there's, there's got to be a mistake. This home, this small home, should be for the poor man and the big one for me. And St. Peter said, no, there's no mistake. In fact, okay, I'll tell you why. You remember back on earth when you lived in the big one and the poor guy lived in the, poor, in the little house? He said he wasn't actually poor. He was just sending all of his wealth to heaven. He was investing in heaven. He was doing what Jesus said to do. And so we used the money and we built the house for him. <laughs> but if you remember, you know, as a proportion of your wealth and what you were sending, you sort of didn't send a whole lot compared to what he was sending. And this was all we could put together. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, the theology of that story is probably more humor than true. But it has a powerful message. It has a powerful message. Because Jesus said, invest in heaven. He said, put your treasure in heaven and you will be rewarded for it. There's numerous passages in Scripture that say that what you invest in heaven will be your reward when you get there. So the theology of that's okay. But it's not necessarily in, in dollars, dollars and amounts and mansion sizes and all the rest of it. We need to invest in souls for the kingdom. We've got to send it on ahead like Genghis Khan's, Genghis Khan's men. Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's so true. And I just have a question there. We don't need to answer it. But if this is a command from Christ, how can we be more obedient to it? Just a question for your heart. Colossians 3, 1 to 5. If, this is conditional, if then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting on the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. One question that people ask, and we're going to come to a question time soon, one question that people ask of me is, Julian, are you saying that we shouldn't have assets? Are you saying that we shouldn't be in business? Are you saying that we shouldn't be professionals? And the answer is no, I'm not saying that. God needs professionals, business people, people who he can bless with great wealth. But over and above any dollars and cents, God wants your heart. And if your business, if your career, if your studies, if your car, if your assets, if your investments, if your collections are getting between your heart and God, get rid of them. Because God doesn't, God's got the, he's, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't care about the millions or billions or whatever he's given you. He just wants your heart to be right so that those, those things that he has entrusted to you will flow out into the work that he has given. I know wealthy Christians whose heart, from my perspective, and it's a bit hard to see because I'm a human. Remember, I look at the outside, God looks at the heart. But from my perspective, wealthy, God-fearing men and women whose heart is right and they are sharing with God, with God's work. And I encourage you to do that. That's all these talks are about. It's not about go home and sell everything. But if the Holy Spirit convicts you to go home and sell everything, you better do it because that's between your heart and God. You remember William Miller? Sorry, I'll come back to it there. William Miller, a farmer, a guy who was doing quite well as far as farmers go. And in the 1800s, he was studying his Bible and he thought he could see in there, in the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, that Jesus was coming back really soon. And he studied it and he studied it and he studied it. And he was convicted that, yes, that's what it said, but he sat on it. I think some of you may know, I think he sat on it for about 12 years or something, not wanting to share what God had placed on his heart. And then finally, he did share it. And of course, we know that the message that William Miller shared led to the great advent awakening in the United States, in Europe, in the UK, different parts of the world. People believed that Jesus was coming back first, initially in 1843, but then they thought, they, they looked at some of the stuff in the Bible and they went, no, actually 1844, and then as that 1844 came closer, they thought actually October, and then they worked it out that it was going to be October 22, 1844, Jesus was going to come back to earth. Well, many of us know the story that they were greatly disappointed in the fact that we're still here today tells that story. There was a great disappointment. God-fearing men and women who were studying God's word, who were led by the Holy Spirit, who were passionate and on fire for God, but they were mistaken. Just like the 12 disciples, who God-fearing men who were with Jesus, who read the scriptures, who knew that it pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, but they were mistaken, weren't they? And as they went on there on Palm Sunday and everyone's waving Hosanna to the King of Kings, glory to God in the highest, and, the people are, and Jesus was going into Jerusalem and they're going, this is it. This is what the prophecy pointed to. Our King is going to be set up. A few days later, they were greatly disappointed. They were God-fearing men and women, but they were allowed to go into a period of great disappointment as they were in 1844, so that they would dig deeper and then be raised up 
as we see in Revelation 10, to share a gospel message with the world. A great disappointment. William Miller was the leader of that disappointment, a, a major leader of that disappointment. On October 22, many of the disappointed people left. Well, October 23, they, some lost their faith, some went back to their other denominations. A lot of them just went, nah, that's it. And they walked away. But not William Miller. And a couple of weeks later, he was interviewed. And a few weeks after that, they published his interview. And the interviewer said to him, Miller, why haven't you walked away? Why aren't you discouraged? And here is a key secret to William Miller's faith. He said, although I have been twice disappointed, I am not yet cast down or discouraged. I have fixed my mind upon another time. His eyes were on heaven, friends. And here I mean to stand until God gives me more light. And that is today, today, and today, until he comes and I see him for whom my soul yearns. Friends, that's where our eyes have got to be. Not cross-eyed Christians, not one eye on heaven and one eye on earth, both eyes on the cross. Now, that doesn't mean we have to stop being in business or stop having careers. No, it just means that our purpose, our very reason for existence is the cross of Christ and sharing the gospel message with the world. That's the reason for our business. That's the reason for our career. That's the reason for every investment we have. That's the reason for every profit that we receive, every income, every wage, every salary check that we have is for the future of the hastening of the coming of Christ. We're going to have a, a question time. Uh, depending on how many questions you've got, we've got about 15 minutes that we can allocate to question times. Then I'm, then I'm just going to finish with a, an illustration from the 23rd Psalm. Any questions at this stage? Hard, easy, whatever. I can't promise I'll give you the answer, but uh, fire, fire them at me and we'll see where, where God leads. Whatever it was, what, did you have to take steps? Were there, was there a path? Were, did you find support uh, some way? Yeah. yeah. I'm curious about... What happened the there? Oh, yeah, what was the practicality of yeah. understanding, okay, this is where my conviction is, how did you go about making it happen? Okay, so the question is, when I went through that conversion experience and I understood some of these things and I, I, God gave me a new heart and things changed in my life, what was the practicality? How did that happen? Well, a lot of it was the wisdom of counsellors. But, but let me go back one step before that. I'll tell you how most of it happened. Like this. Like that. On my knees with God's word open, saying, Lord, please guide me. Please guide me. And just going through story after story in scripture. From that, seeking the wisdom of counsellors, uh, talking to my own family, and I tell you what, that was interesting. If you're married uh, or if you've got co-investments, if you're in partnership with, in business or something, uh, talk, <laughs> talk. Uh, I have a story in my book where I decided one, I'll give it to you very briefly, Melinda was never a snow skier. For me, I loved snow skiing and it was the, for me it was the favourite family holiday, but she never skied, which was good for us, for the boys in the family, because we'd come home to cook meals three times a day and, you know, it was fantastic. <laughs> Uh, but then one year she decided to start skiing. And that very next 12 months after she had started skiing and absolutely loved it, 
I had a conviction that we shouldn't be spending $10,000 a week on ski holidays. And so as the next ski season came up and the family was starting to talk about where are we going to ski this year, I just uh, sat them down as a good spiritual father of the household and said, well, guys, it's like this. We're, we're not skiing this year. And Melinda, ski bunny archer, <laughs> who had just got the love of, of skiing in her heart, just looked at me and said, what? All these years you've been telling me to ski and then I do ski and the next year you get some conviction that we're not skiing anymore. <laughs> so all I'm saying is dis discuss things. <laughs> we, we sorted it out. It's okay. We, we have a fantastic marriage. She's a Proverbs 31 woman. She teaches me a lot. Uh, if you wonder what that means, go to Proverbs 31 verses 10 and onwards and you'll meet my wife. Uh, but yeah, communicate. So communication was a big part of that as well. And then, of course, in the whole process was the decision, the understanding that everything I have is God's. And I had to go from a situation where I was saying in my heart, I do believe everything that I have is God's. And if God ever asks me to give it, I will. Because I was quite happy saying that. <laughs> I was comfortable. <laughs> he hadn't asked me to give it, had he? Surely not. Um, and so I, I could keep living like that. And it wasn't impacting my lifestyle. In fact, we were, we were affluent enough that we could give what some people would cons consider heaps of money into God's work, and it didn't change my lifestyle one iota. There was zero sacrifice. I still had a very nice lifestyle. And then I had to realise that there's a thing called sacrifice, and I had to go through that process. Uh, and the process, as I said this morning, was the most painful but most beautiful thing that's ever happened to me. It just completely changed my life, and now... When I look at Jesus Christ, when I turn my eyes upon Jesus, the things of earth grow strangely dim. And it is strange, friends. It is strange. It's, uh, they, they're not meant to be dim. When you walk through that duty-free shopping mall, they're shouting out at you, saying, hey, buy me, look at me. They're meant to be bright and glitzy. But they're just trash. They are just trash. In Jesus' words, he says that they are an abomination in the sight of God. The Greek word is delugma which means, uh, how do I put it nicely? Um, excretion. Uh, and that doesn't mean that God can't use it. Remember, fertilizer is excretion. And when you spread it around, it does a lot of good. But if we put it into our hearts, we're in trouble. So that, but that was some of the process, some of the, some of the journey. Any other questions? Yep. And there's a, it's a personal thing. Absolutely. Um, and so you're saying for yourself, the personal decision that you made in your yep. conversion was that you pursue <coughs> doing business yeah. and building out money on Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so for my personal decision, and, and this is one and one, this is between you and God. And as I said, God needs people in business. But my conviction that God gave me was to move out of it all. Um, now, I, that was, uh, I think they mentioned it somewhere. I retired in my 30s. I never needed to work again. But then God touched my heart. <laughs> and I will have to work again, probably, because God said, Julian, all that stuff that you're storing up to look after your future so that you never need to work again, I can find really good use for that right now. 
Because the needs of tomorrow are no greater than the needs of today. So, Julian, I need you to give today. Some, I'll raise somebody else up to give tomorrow, but I need you to give today. And so, in the coming years, depending on how God provides, I mean, God, God could provide any way, I don't know. Uh, but that's a decision that I've made. I'm no longer in business. Um, I have no problem with people being in business at all. But, and there's the but word that comes in, if that business is taking away your salvation, do something about it. You, you've got to get on your knees and pour out your heart. For me, it was face down in the carpet with Ezekiel 36 open, crying my eyes out, saying, Lord, I can't do this anymore. Please give me that new heart. And that journey went on over a few months, and it still goes on today. It's a daily battle. Yeah, another question? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to take up the question time, because that also plays into things like, you know, people may not be very wealthy, but yeah. they might hang on to a job because it provides benefits yeah. or insurance or these types of things. Yeah. So, Yeah. Yeah, look, this this isn't just this isn't about millions of dollars. This is about our hearts. And it can happen, a person can be living in the slums of Calcutta and be holding on to the best stainless steel cup in the street. <laughs> and that's what's getting between them and God. Uh, it, so it's relative. It it affects everybody in different ways. Uh, the the thing is to be on our knees and asking God, Lord, please show me. And please give me the strength and everything, the courage that I need to step out in faith, faith versus finance, and, and move forward. Yeah. We'll take, uh, I can take a couple more questions. Yeah, up the back. What are your thoughts about planning ahead for retirement? Yeah, thoughts about planning ahead for retirement, excellent question. I actually have a whole other program on that, in retirement and inheritances. Um, I believe we should, in a, in a nutshell. I believe we should. I believe that every uh, family should try to have a roof over their heads, that they should have, have a home that they own outright, debt-free. Uh, I believe it should be a humble home. I, I can be honest with you, I, do, I currently don't live in what I would consider a humble home. It's a leftover, it's a legacy from an earlier life. Uh, I don't know how long we'll live there as we downsize, as we change, we're moving other assets at the moment into God's work. but. Um, I believe everybody should do that. I believe we should plan for the future. It reminds me, you know, when the guy's in a flood and the waters are coming up around his house and he's on the roof and he's praying, Lord, please save me. You've probably heard it. And a rowboat comes past and says, hop in. He says, no, no, God's going to save me. And then a helicopter comes and lets down a rope and says, climb up the rope. He says, no, no, God's going to save me. And then he dies, drowns, gets to heaven and says, why didn't you save me? He said, well, I sent you a boat. I sent you a rope. You know, and it's the same for retirement. We need to be wise about our future. We need to be wise about uh, what we are saving for those times ahead. Uh, but, but I say that, I probably shouldn't say that as blanket a statement as I, do, as I did, because for some people, God will say, no, you just stay out here in the mission field or whatever, right through, and I will give you everything you need. And you know, Scripture is more along those lines than along planning for retirement. There's only one place in the Bible that it talks about retirement, uh, and that's Numbers, somewhere, where it's talking about the priests. who They start in the, in the temple at 25, they finish at 50, and at 50, when they retire, their job then is to help the younger priests. So they don't actually retire, um, but that's, that's the only thing we have in Scripture. So, uh, yeah, I do believe that we are to plan for those things. But if my trust is in my 401k and not in Jesus, 
I've got a problem. If my trust is in my assets, maybe my home and my investment property and my 401k, so that down the track I can have enough right through to the end and that's what I'm trusting in, then I'm a Christian atheist because I've got to trust in God. My trust has to be in God, not in the blessings that he gives me. He'll give us blessings. He wants to bless us. He's a good father. He wants to bless us. Uh, yeah, then nobody's asked about inheritances, but I'll give you one thing on inheritances. I won't give you all the background story to it, but here's an interesting saying. If my children don't work as hard and as smart as I did, they don't deserve my money. And if they do work as hard and as smart as I did, they won't need my money. I've told my boys that. <laughs> um, but just think about it. You know, is the money that God has given you when, you when you die, when you pass away, is that primarily to go to the next generation or is it to go to God's work? And should you keep, on it until, keep holding on to it until you die? I won't go into the Spirit of Prophecy quotes about doing that. Man, she's got some heavy quotes about holding on to your assets until you die and then leaving them in your will. She, said, she basically just says that's just pure selfishness. <laughs> okay, so a few things about inheritances there. Any, any other questions? These are hard words, and believe me, this, is, this touches my heart because these are decisions that I'm making every day too. Is there a hand over here? Uh, sorry, we're... we're Moving into a cashless society, is there any what in gold and silver? You, you said there's something about gold and silver. Uh, since there's going to be a cashless society so that the world can be controlled by finances, the government's going to control our finances. Is there any validity in acquiring maybe a little gold? Uh, okay. Okay. Fine. Yeah. Okay. So cashless society, should we buy a little gold or silver or whatever because we might be able to use that to trade. My, my gut answer is trust in God. Trust in God. Have, maintain that daily relationship with him rather than trying to outguess the global financial market. Uh, yes, we are heading towards a cashless society. I think Sweden is aiming to go cashless in about three or four years. It wants to be the first cashless society in the world. Um, Many parts of Africa are already cashless. They simply use their smartphones to do all their transactions. We're a little bit behind in, in some of the developed nations. Uh, but the time is coming, and I know in Australia they're planning to roll it out in a couple of years, where if I owe you $50, I can just say, what's your phone number? There's your $50. And boom, boom, no cash. No hold-ups at banks, no drug trade, black market, all that sort of stuff. Of course, those guys will work around it in some way. But they're, saying, they're promoting it as a safer society and all the other benefits, more secure. Uh, but that's, that is the direction we're heading. We'll be okay if we go in that direction on our knees as, as God's people. That's what we need to do. We need to be on our knees saying, Lord, give us light. Because he knows the future. He knows when different issues are coming. Uh, yeah, I won't go into too much of that at this stage. Well, let's say one more question and then we'll finish up. Yeah? Okay. You said for young people? Yeah. Look, the story itself, I wrote it for my two teenage boys. Well, it's not so much a story, but the, they're, they're little chapters, they're little snippets of principles uh, about faith and finance. So, yes, very readable. Uh, families use it for worship. They'll read one story 
a night or a week or whenever they're doing their worship. Um, the second part of your question is a really hard one. How do you approach a person who appears to be going down a wrong road and relying on money more than God? Look, it's really, really difficult. Um, Soren Kierkegaard tells the story of what's called the aesthetic stage of life. That's the stage of life when we are like a rock skipping across a pond and we're just, we're going from one career advancement to the next, we're winning new contracts, we're having great holidays and the next holiday is even nicer, we're driving nice cars and buying even nicer ones and we're just enjoying the, the luxuries of life, we're skipping across the pond. But he says that there comes a time in life when the skips get faster and faster and closer and closer together. We need more, 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 more. I've got to have a better cruise than last time, a nicer car. I need a bigger advance. I need... And then the rock loses momentum and sinks down, down, down into the muddy darkness. And then it's lying there in the mud, lying on its back, looking up. And it's then that it cries out to God for help. And it's often then it's the only time that God can help because it's the only time that the rock cried out. In my life, and I've seen it in other people's lives as well, we are really hard to help when we're skipping along through life because we've got all the stuff. We've got, life's good, you know, and we look at others around us and go, I'm doing better than them, you know, and so I, I've, life's good. I don't need God. But when we're lying on our back in the mud, now that can come through health, it can come through bankruptcy, it can come through family, relationship issues, it can come through a whole lot of different things. When we're lying there in the mud crying out to God, that's the opportunity to offer some help at that time. And it's, it's tough. It's, it's tough. Uh, the rich young ruler, it's easier for a camel to go, into, go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Yeah. Okay, look, I just want to finish with an illustration. Um, in the 23rd Psalm, if you turn to it in your Bibles, it's, it's the most famous psalm. It's, to me, it's one of the most beautiful psalms that we have. The 23rd Psalm, written by King David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. You know the psalm. It's just a beautiful psalm, a beautiful song of praise between uh, a lamb and the shepherd. That's really where it's at. In verse 5 it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's a Jewish tradition which I believe is still upheld by some Messianic Jews today. And that is the tradition that <clears throat> back in David's time when he wrote that psalm, there was a law of hospitality in the land. And the law was this, that if a person was travelling between two towns during the day and they couldn't quite make it to the next town by nightfall, then they could knock on the door of anybody living alongside the road and say, my friend, look, I'm trying to get to the next town but I can't get there could I please stay with you for the night? And the law said that you, as the house owner, must welcome them in, give them dinner, a bed, and breakfast, and then send them on their way. And of course, if you yourself were ever in that situation, then the people living beside that road would welcome you in. A law of hospitality, a beautiful law. But there was something that happened at breakfast time that was very interesting. 
there was an unwritten message that went between the host, the house owner, and the guest. If the host filled the guest's glass half full at breakfast time, then that was an unwritten, unspoken message that simply said, my friend, I have given you dinner, bed and a breakfast. I have given, I have fulfilled the law of the land, but it's now time for you to move on. Very simple, isn't it? Some people have told me that they would like to have that today, <laughs> something that they could do in their homes. However, if, on the other hand, the host filled that glass, then that was another unspoken message, and it was simply that, my friend, I've given you dinner, bed, and breakfast. I've fulfilled the law of the land, but if you need to stay another night, please feel welcome. Stick around. Isn't that beautiful? Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runneth over. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever and ever. Sorry? He didn't say that. That's right. It's not waste. Stick around, you'll see me drink it out of the tray. (laughs) (laughs) The, The message is clear. God wants us to dwell in his house forever and ever and ever. But the choice is yours and it's mine. And the way that we relate to the things of this earth in the light of his glory and grace will affect whether or not we get to stay in God's house forever and ever. I'm not giving that to you as a works-oriented thing. I'm giving it to you that when Jesus Christ comes into your heart because of what he has done on Calvary, your love for him will just explode and you'll want to, you'll want to tell everybody, you'll want to invest everything you can in his work, you'll want to just share the, the good news, the freedom, the peace, the joy that he has brought into your life. You want to share it with everybody else. You can still do that in business. You can do it as a professional. But do it on your knees is my prayer. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again that you are a patient God. Lord, thank you that you put up with us misinterpreting your word and, and trying to read into your word what we want it to read. Whereas, Lord, what your word is telling us is that you love us and that if we could see the end from the beginning, we would never choose to be led in any way except that the way that you want to lead us through your word. So, Lord, I just pray that we might come before you humbling now on behalf of each heart here that is is ready and asking of you, Lord, I request that you will renew our hearts and that as we get up off our knees, you will live in our lives and you will shine out through us and that you will use us, Lord, to take the beautiful, life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ to this world. Lord, we know that the greatest rescue event on this planet is about to happen. Please help us to tell people. Give us the boldness and the courage and the words and the means and everything we need to take the gospel to all the world is my prayer. And thank you for hearing it because we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. 
Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.